Welcome to the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ibede Dugwe, and I'm your host for today. We'll be discussing financial management of a healthcare NGO. We've got a wonderful guest with us today, and his name is Mr. Wilfred Zion. He's the Finance Director for Partners in Health in Liberia, and he brings a wealth of experience of working in the public health and, and NGO space. So very welcome, Wilfred. Um, so just as a sort of starting point, uh, can you tell us about your career journey to working uh, with an uh, NGO? Thank you, and Abby. It's my pleasure to be here as well. I mean, the organization I work for is Partners in Health. Partners in Health is an international nonprofit uh, based in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, with several offices um, outside of the U.S., in Africa and, and Russia and other parts of the world. Um, just to describe my, my <clears throat> career uh, with, with, within the NGO sector, I see it more like um, a path more than a plan. And um, uh, in order to explain that, I, I was born here in Liberia. Um, and then a few years after I was born, uh, the crisis packed up. So everyone has to go find a way to escape the chaos of the crisis. But what, what, I, what, what I think is of more path to my public health career is how I was born and what happened afterwards. So I was born here and uh, my mother gave birth to me on her own. I did no hospital. I wasn't in the clinic. She gave birth to me in the kitchen um, of the house constructed by my grandfather. My grandfather was in the police. So my mom tells me that she gave birth to me on the 12th, maybe on a Wednesday, all by herself. She didn't go to the clinic. There was no ambulance, no doctor, there's no midwife. Immediately after I was born, um, I have to flee the country and then uh, go to Ghana as a refugee. Um, <clears throat> while I was in Ghana and when we were growing up, my dad has wanted me to be, um, I mean, agriculturally. He has wanted me to do agri in school. Uh, so um, he unfortunately died during the heat of the crisis when I was already away at Liberia. He died during the crisis. And uh, despite of him wanting me to do um, agriculture, from high school up to the university in Ghana, you go to high school based on your high school grades. So the computer will place you to, to the college or to the university based on your high school grades. So from the high school, my grades placed me. I never wanted to go to business college, but my high school grades placed me into the business college. And while I was in the business college, I, I lost contact with my parents completely. Um, after so many years, I got told that my dad passed on. And when he passed on, he got sick. And my mom did everything that him could do for him to survive. He got sick, he couldn't um, be transported to the hospital. I think my mom has to ask family members to, to, to help him go to the hospital by toting him on their back. So they didn't reach to the hospital and then um, he, he didn't survive, he, he died. That's the main reason I say my, 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 my journey of going into the public health is more like a, a path than a plan. Immediately I finished my college, the first job I got was not partners in health, but it was a medical NGO called Med Medical Assistance Program International. I was in the finance part. When I left the medical assistance program, I joined partners in health at the heat of the Ebola. 
So when I look at when I look at the teams and the connection between how I was born and what has happened and up to now, I, I see like, okay, my dad wanted me to, to, to be an agriculturalist. My business school, my, my high school grades placed me in business. After business school, I would have gone to an oil company. I would have gone to any other place. But because of the connection between how I was born, where I come from, as, as, as somebody who survived conflict, I think public health has been pulling the plug for me to come closer. And I have been enjoying it so far. I joined partners in health in 2014. Uh, we work, and as, as the conversation goes on, we'll continue to hear more of it, but we have been here in Liberia already since 2014, doing some of the difficult time. And to, to be part of that, where I'm coming from, who I am, from the connections I have, to be part of this mission, I think is incredible. I think it's, it's a path more than a plan, like I said. And that and that's truly inspirational, actually, um, to see how you've turned what were challenges for you into solutions for other people. Um, around you now. So what would you say are the financial challenges of a healthcare NGO? Yeah, I get asked a lot of time and uh, I can say in the space of NGO, the, the financial resources, especially if you work in Africa, are always insufficient compared to the needs. So there are more needs than there are money to cater to those needs. And um, <clears throat> here in, in, in Partners in Health, how we've been doing it is, uh, if there's anything that we can do to save life, um, how can we place a dollar value of that? And how do we make sure that that dollar value goes directly to the people who matter most? And by that, it's not, it's not, an, it's not any indication to say that somebody else should be giving more than another person, but, um, there are places in Africa, there are places, particularly in Liberia, where it is difficult to reach. And so when we're making our financial decisions, that's part of the, the, the limited resources that we have. We always want to reach to places that um, people don't feel comfortable reaching. We always want to reach out to people who are down the line, that um, we call them the poorest of the poor. So that's, that's, that's have guided our, our decisions in terms of the limited resources we have. That has guided our decision of making sure that what we have reached to those group of people I just described. In terms of matching the financial resources to the problem, how does that happen? Is there a process? Is there a protocol? What happens in, in, that, in that scenario? Excellent. So we, we do what well for deliberate go-no-go no go process. And that go-no-go no go process is informed by our mission. And, and, and we've broken down our mission into strategic plans. So um, we have a mission of prefer providing preferential option for the poor. That's the overall mission of the organization through medical research and medical services. And so we have translated that overall mission into yearly strategic plans. So currently we are running a five-year strategic plan that has ended or that is ending this year. Uh, by the end of this year, we'll be drawing up another five-year strategic plan. And our, those five years plans or activities are drawn up in a way <clears throat> that is deliberate. So for example, we say in Liberia, there are 15 counties and those of you in the US, uh, we broke the country down into counties. And so each of the counties um, we're currently in five of those counties in Liberia. 
So each of those counties, we work with the government of Liberia and say, where is the national health plan? What, what are the investment priorities of the countries in healthcare? And so we're trying to, we try to fit our five-year strategic plans into the overall national health investment plans. And when we shall have fitted ourselves into the five-year um, health investment plans, then we say, okay, malaria, uh, do we fit in, in the malaria control program? HIV, where do we want to put our dollars? Um, health education, epidemiology, where do we put our dollars? So it's, it's kind of strategic and intentional um, of making those kind of decisions through a well-defined goal no go process. We look at um, what the government has on the table, what the community has on the table to bring on the table, and we tie all of these knots together before we fit in. And, you know, that, that answer just truly warmed my heart because I think one of the challenges in terms of African healthcare, you know, things that we're trying to solve is that people often worry about where the money goes and how can they get a measure for their money. So I'm going to ask you, what are the metrics that you use to measure the growth and the you know, sustainability of these projects? Do you use, you know, the SROI? You know, what are the metrics that you guys use? We get most of the money from donors and uh, best way to, to, to get more of these monies from the donors is to follow the money. And of course, we got two funds of funding. We got what we call the unrestricted and the restricted. The restricted one comes with reporting requirements, compliance requirements, and all of that. The unrestricted, they believe in our values and our mission, and it just gives us the money. But it does not mean that we are not accountable. We are accountable. So we, we use a whole lot of metrics. We, our strategic plans have reporting frames, both financial and data-oriented numbers. And at the end of each uh, strategic plan year, five years, we said, okay, we said we will have done X amount of uh, interventions in mater maternal health. How did we fare? What, what, what is the dollar value of being able to do that in five years? So all of, all of those frames and, and, and reporting mechanisms uh, are not only for donors, but they are also for government because at the end of the day, we tell public institutions, we tell government like, hey, listen, our approach of providing healthcare is not only to put up billboards, put up signboards, we also want to show to you what worked and what didn't work. So um, we, see, we see accountability and following numbers despite of the, the tracking mechanism we have in place, we are in the business of producing evidence of what is working and what is not working to our partners like government and to donors. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's an amazing resource, actually, because it allows for planning for the future, you know, not just for your organization, for the government and for future, you know, healthcare NGOs that want to come into that space. It allows them to be able to, you know, plan for the future. So that brings me to what do you think is the is the best revenue model um, for, you know, healthcare NGOs to have a sustainable business model? There is a difference. There's a big difference between the sciences of managing NGO and the human aspect of it. The sciences will tell you all the models and all the techniques. But if you want to build sustainable NGOs, you have to have a balance and a mix of all of that, the human part of it and the science part of it. So here, here at Patterns and Health, we <clears throat> say that whatever intervention that we do, wherever the money is coming from, um, that in intervention is owned by the government of any of the country that we work in. 
So we look up to government to say, What's the, what, how do you want to finance health services? And how can we help you to finance health services for a sustainable uh, outcome? And what we've heard over the years, what we've learned over the years, there are kind of mix of them. I mean, some, some places we work, uh, and I'm very careful with my words, some places that we work, uh, they think that NGOs should continue to provide services or provide money for health services. And, and it's that dynamic that we want to change. It's that dynamic that we are committed to change. So how are we changing that? We're saying that um, whatever funding that we get from donors and how long the commitment will be, those are not sustainable. Those cannot be sustained because every donor has an interest and the interest has an end. And there's no donor who will fund, finance um, um, healthcare services. So we've been talking to donors to translate to, sorry, to, to our partners like the government and the community we work with to translate whatever do, uh, donor money that is being coming to national um, 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 <clears throat> to, uh, strategies that tends to minimize donor intervention as the years go by. So we are we, at, the, at the government level, we are doing advocacy, we are talking to the government to say, hey, is it about time between now and the next 10 years, between now and the next 15 years, do you rethink your commitment to taxes to healthcare? Do, could you rethink about having community ownership to, to health finance? Could you try to change some of the policies? Because we can get whatever money we want from USAID once we show programmatic direction. Uh, we can get whatever money from, from global from, from from any bilateral uh, partners. But mind you, the dynamics at the international level, the dynamics at all these funding levels will continue to change. When there is, when there is an outbreak, people change. So our sustainable met, uh, approach to health financing and here in partners in health, what I have learned for the year is a mechanism that pushes the government of, of, of any country to, I mean, see health financing in a very different way. How much of your dollar can you into health budget, for example? And how are you making communities to take ownership to community to, 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 to form part of the health decision making process? Until these are done, uh, whatever model that any NGO has uh, will not be sustainable. And here in Partners in Health, we don't come up with our own model. We, we look at what the government is working with. We challenge them to change things that, 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 that are not sustainable and show to them what is working. Canada survives or has one of the best healthcare systems, health financing mechanism, all because of three things. They change the policy to health financing. Um, they show commitment to the policies that they change and they mobilize the population. These three things to us are the sustainable mechanism that every country can take. In poor countries, it's even difficult because there are always going to be competitive um, uh, uh, needs. So when you talk health and legal education, when you talk education and leave us um, uh, agriculture, but in the mix of all of that, we are challenging our partners, uh, and government and communities to demonstrate, if you think your health is important, then you have to demonstrate it at, at the three layers that I just talked about. 
Yeah. And honestly, again, that was just amazing to see, you know, the name partners in health actually in action, like you said. So you're not just going in there and creating your own ecosystem. You are truly partnering with the people, you know, with the government themselves and the people on ground so that that sustains itself beyond, you know, your presence in, in the country. And that, that is something I, I'm not sure, you know, many NGOs do. So it's, it's really nice to hear that you guys are doing that. So I'm going to ask then, how has the pandemic affected, you know, partners in health? Um, the, the pandemic, not only partners in health, has affected several layers of, of the globe, including for profits and non-profit. But you see, in the NGO world, we always think that something will happen. And, and when something happens, how do you react? Uh, that's, that's, that's kind of the heart that we wear. And I call it, personally, I call it that when you work in the NGO space, there is always going to be a shock, despite of the meticulousness of your planning, have that at the back of your mind, that there's always going to be a shock. So it has affected our, our approach, but yes, we are risks oriented as an organization. We learn from these risks. And so I think um, for the past years that, that we have worked because of that mind frame, I would say that um, it, came, it came with itself opportunities as well. But here is how it's affected our, our, us as an organization. A lot of the funders, people who give up money are based in outside of the poor countries that we work in. Many of them are based in the US. And so if, if a funder, the particular supporter loses a job or get told that you're going to work from home and your income is going to drop, the replicate effect is that the money that we were getting from these people were also crap. So it has affected us um, in terms of our revenue streams. But the opportunity it gave us is that um, it continued to tell our partners and places that we work that if you don't give healthcare the due attention, um, healthcare is a public good. So everyone who is, who is concerned with public safety must give healthcare uh, the due attention. If you don't give healthcare the due attention, when you have this kind of, of, of uncertainty, like the pandemic, it's going to expose you. So um, the opportunity it gives us is that that kind of message, at least when out of people saw the message that, hey, this thing needs attention. Uh, no one who is not in their sound mind, healthy mind, will go to school. The, the, the economy will not bloom if people are not healthy. Um, um, citizens will not follow their dreams and their career if they are not happy. So it came with opportunity at that level. But from the strains of money and from the strains of our own operations, um, we, it, it changed a lot. It changed our work culture. Our US office, for example, I, I understood that almost everybody up to now is still working from home. Here in Liberia, we, we modify our work culture. I'm here today. In the following week, I will not be here because we don't want this place for later. Um, Working from home in this kind of change in work culture, those are things that you don't usually do in Africa. If you want to meet somebody, for example, at the government level, the culture is to always meet the person in person. And changing all of that, um, those are some of the things that, that it came with. But as an organization, like I said, we are in the business of um, expecting the un unexpected, and we are making our strategies and our interventions, our plan to align with that. And, and yeah, and that that's, again, is a reflection of, you know, your learning from your whole ecosystem and adapting to the to the entire environment. So it's good to hear that. Um, so 
I'll just come back to sort of the donor side of things and ask, you know, do you have a criteria and is there a governance structure in terms of vetting donations um, for the organization for the organization so you don't leave yourself vulnerable? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, 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 see, I always take this from a two views. The first view is that the donor community is competitive. And then the second view is that it's not every money that is available at the donor community that is our money in, in PIH. It's not every money that we chase, if I, if I can put it that way. So we, 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 we look at donors, but we don't look at donors. We look at our mission and look at people and money and resources that fit in our mission. So um, the, 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 for, for us, the effort is not how much is available, the effort is how much is available that matches our mission. And so our go-no-go process takes into consideration um, that kind of criteria. The second thing is we don't cap our efforts on emergency because we come from a perspective of building systems and you don't build systems in months. You don't build systems even in years. You build systems for a very long time. And so when the emergency money that are flowing all over the place, we ask ourselves, is this emergency resource available going to disrupt the kind of system we want to build? Or is going to add on to the system that we want to build? All of these kind of questions and strategic um, and challenges that we pose to ourselves informed us to say, yes, this is worth following and this is not worth following. Yeah, and again, it's good to hear that, that, you know, you're not just after the money, but you're after people who add value to the work and the mission um, of Partners in Health. So, you know, Partners in Health works across four continents. How do you decide, you know, which country you're going to go into work in and, you know, what projects you're going to focus on? Yeah, good, good question, um, and Abby. <clears throat> First, I would say that we make long-term commitments. And uh, making long-term commitments is not only a one-dimensional approach. It's, it's an approach that says, as long as the government believes in what we are doing and appreciates and know that what we are doing is bringing change, we will stay. Um, <clears throat> so far that uh, what our mission says we should pursue is in that part of the world, when we go there, we go there for long-term uh, commitments. So for example, if you took Haiti, we went to Haiti in, from the very beginning and we, we are still there. Um, the, 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 the current outbreak in Haiti, we one of the key respondents. Um, we came to Liberia in, in 2014 at the epic of the Ebola crisis in West Africa. The president then who was the first female president um, in Africa, reached out to us and say, hey, um, I've heard of the excellent work that you've done in here. Could you come to Liberia? And so the decision makers within the organization decided like, okay, Liberia needs a very resilient health system. And that resilient health system uh, will require you having a touch and a nudge at what I call the pillars of a resilient health system. So you look at the health workforce, you look at uh, the stuff, uh, at the medicine coming, at the supplies coming, 
you look at the space, the infrastructure, the infrastructure. Uh, then you look at the system. So here, the five S's to a resilient health system still require considerable amount of investment, uh, whether financial or technical or whatever they will be. And so after screening all of that, we say, uh, you cannot go to Liberia for 10 years. You cannot be in Liberia for, for 15 years and expect things to change drastically. We want to see that after 30 years, can we look back to say, have workforce, what have you done? Can we look back to say space, infrastructure, clinics, what have you done? System, I mean, governance and leadership, what have you done? Stuff, supplies, medicine, what kind of reliable and strong resist, resilient system have we built? So that's, that's how the decision of going to places, the decision of making project decisions are made. They are, going to, they are, they are necessarily made knowing that uh, we are not an emergency response organization. They are made based on the fact that we will have to mobilize more resources because we commit for longer term. Um, they are made based on the fact that when we are there, we will continue to learn from our government counterpart, uh, continue to show the evidence of what works and what does not work so that you can have an intention of staying for six years and the government wants you for less than that. So all of those interplays uh, uh, inform our decision of saying uh, we have to stay here for longer. And here in Liberia, like I told you, we, we're here for 30 years. We've already gone six, seven years. And there, there, there appears to be a lot. Uh, if the seven years is, is already uh, a few months. So I'll ask, so what's been the greatest challenge in Liberia? Is it the human resources side of things? Is it the finances? Or is it the building, you know, a sustainable infrastructure? Great question. Um, <clears throat> when you find yourself in places like Liberia, where all, everything was destroyed by the uh, 14 years of civil crisis, then it's very difficult to place a premium on what is, what is a priority because almost everything is so I'm going to provide this from a personal perspective. Um, <clears throat> and from, from the personal perspective, I think almost everything is important. But what is important is a deliberate attempt to provide what is needed. The financing part, the health financing part is very important. And the reason I say this is from what I've learned over the years. Uh, so you cannot build a resilient health workforce if salaries, for example, is still an issue, the government is not able to pay people salaries on time. There are still demonstration here and there of health workers not going to work because they haven't been paid. So um, it's 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 kind of difficult. Do you build hospitals when there are no qualified doctors to be in those hospitals? I mean, the hospital itself is not a building. The hospital is what goes on in the building. So it, it's, it's, it's kind of mixed, but from a personal perspective, I, I, I think that uh, post-war conflict like Liberia has to be very deliberate when it comes to financing health um, care for sustainability. It shouldn't just be things on the boat. It should be things that we can demonstrate with our national budget. It should be things that we can demonstrate with our investment in people. And so for me, the financing of healthcare is one of the most challenging things. I read in the news and in the, in the data that over 80% of healthcare delivery in Liberia is financed by NGOs like us. Uh, that, was, that doesn't look sustainable for me. So if you, I'm going to challenge you here. So if you were the health minister for one day, 
how would you solve that problem? <laughs> yeah, so there, there are regional blocks. Um, the regional blocks, so by regional blocks, I mean countries coming together in West Africa, say we are equals. The entire African continent coming together, we are AU. And each of these blocks have said that this, this is the commitment we want to make to education. This is the commitment we want to make to healthcare. This, these are the commitment we want to make to agriculture. I mean, conflict-affected countries like Liberia and Sierra Leone are still struggling in terms of making sure that they meet that benchmark. So, for example, when I meet the when I read the the, the sustainable development goals, and it's saying that we want a healthy population, in order for that to happen, this is how much is required for, for us to achieve all the sustainable development goals. And I look at national budgets and see how those budgets are translated to those sectors. They are not in uniformity, unfortunately. Yeah, no, and you're you're very correct about that. And you know, that resonates with the, the statement you made earlier, which is you can't go to school if you're not educated. You can't go to work um, if you're not healthy, rather. You can't go to work if you're not healthy either. So it, it's always interesting to see how you know countries allocate their budget. And I don't think there are many African countries that actually allocate the you know the appropriate amount to the budget for, uh, for healthcare. So you talked earlier on about the Ebola crisis. Tell us about what Partners in Health has, you know, did at the time of the crisis, and what it continues to do in the, you know, since the since the epidemic um, ended. I think this this is one of the um, questions that this is a wonderful opportunity for me to tell you, because um, the Ebola crisis is the beginning of our coming to Liberia and West Africa for. And um, those days, I, I did not grow up in Liberia. I came to Liberia in 2013. But if you were selected to respond to Ebola, it, as, as, it was as if you signed your own death sentence. Like, uh, and, like you, you, you agreed to go and die. That was how it was. So um, it was chaotic for so many reasons. Um, <clears throat> the three M's, I, I call them the three M's. The three M's then were all missing. So M number one was the money to respond to Ebola. There's no money. So the government and the whole world was surprised by the magnitude of how severe the Ebola crisis was. So everyone was looking for money. Then the, the, the men were missing. The, 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 this is a country that has um, a high, very high doctor to patient ratio. There are no enough doctors to get. There are no enough health workers here. Then the, the, the third part was the messaging. So the messaging was, was crystal clear that if I got Ebola today, I would die. So there was a fear factor. So we have money and men missing. We have the messaging has a particular uh, question mark. The messaging were not, they were not friendly. They were, they, the way we did the messaging was not right from the very beginning. And then the, the manpower. <clears throat> so when partners in health came, um, the first thing we did was to say, one, we are going to be uh, beyond the Ebola. So we want to be part of the process that is most system building oriented. So when, when the cry, when the outcry went to the very high level, and people start to pull all the resources to Liberia, 
we were primarily in care of managing the Ebola treatment units, the ETU. And we were um, primarily focusing on the ETUs in the southeastern part of the country. The southeastern part of the country is, by that I mean Maryland County, I mean Rangira County, I mean Grand Cru, and I mean um, part of Rivergate, all of them in the southeastern part. And those are places that you have to drive for 22 hours from where I'm speaking to you from today, Monrovia, wow. to those locations. Wow. So we were in charge of managing those you by, by managing, I mean, staffing the ETU staff, um, equipping the ETU with staff, um, and, and improving the spaces of the ETU. So other, other um, NGOs were building the infrastructure. And their work was, after building the infrastructure of the ETUs, they turned them over. So we have volunteers from all over the world, clinicians coming to Liberia through our initiative, going to the Southeast, treating people with Ebola. And because we're taking it from a system perspective, we were not only treating people, we're not only using these clinicians to treat people, but they were also training their Liberians counterparts. Every supply chain that we brought to this country, we made sure that it worked through the public procurement process. So that that message of saying you own the public procurement process because health is a public good and you are the premium provider of this public good. So everything we did was passed through the, what is called here in Liberia, the county health teams. So in, in each county, there is a county health team responsible to manage healthcare delivery. So we were working through them. We were working with them. All of the ETUs that we were managing, their work, their wasn't no samples that you will see with partners and health logos. All of those logos have the government of Liberia and the Ministry of Health logos, because after the Ebola, we, we, will, we will still be here, the government will still be here. And so from those perspectives, that's how we did things. We were staffing the ETU, not only by bringing our, our friends and supporters from around the world, we, we use them to transfer skills to the, to, to the ministry counterpart. The public procurement system that I talked about is we're bringing PPE, for example, we brought them through the public procurement system, uh, which is also challenged. Uh, we built collaborations that, uh, with other NGOs that are system oriented. So we will, I remember I participated in a couple of them because I went to the ATU a few times. Uh, there, there were clinical management meetings and in the clinical management meetings, we were bringing government partners on the table we are uh, bringing the communities in the table, on the table and letting them know that um, by we having Ebola, there are lessons to learn and document and there are things to improve on. And, 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 and that has helped a lot because beyond the Ebola now, the systems that we push to build, I think the foundations are clear. And I can say here on this, on this podcast that uh, it is because of most of these reasons that we, I mean, Liberia Public Health System, learned from the Ebola, uh, it was very easy, I would say, to get ready for the pandemic, the Ebola pandemic, because the structure was already there. The frame of community sensitization and community ed education was already there. So those are the opportunities that we pick up. But partners in health uh, involvement with the, with the Ebola care started with making sure that uh, we provide clinicians who pass off skills to their government of Liberia counterpart. We provide staff and, and, and public health goods through the, the public health supply chain system. 
uh, all the structures we set up at the county with the county health team, the government, are structures today that we are benefiting from uh, when, when there is a pandemic. Yeah, and I love the word you use there about opportunities. Not many people will frame these situations as opportunities, but it's you know it's amazing to to see an organization look at it as that. Um, you know, you taught you, you touched on bringing friends and bringing you know expertise into the country and the skills transfer that they're doing to the local um, local teams. What work is um, partners in health do in regards to maintaining that workforce um, skills in the community in Liberia? There's a philosophy that everyone, every decision maker in partners in health uh, is very, I would say, um, aware of. And that philosophy is we are not working for the Ministry of Health. We are not working for the government of Liberia. We are working with them. And so there's a big difference between working for them and working with them. And so if I show up today with all the financial management expertise and techniques that I have learned all over, when I show over today at the Ministry of Health, uh, I don't tell them what, what, what I can do. I tell them, uh, hey, what are you doing and, and, and how can I support you with budgeting? How can I support you with financial management, with controls? And so we are very deliberate with that. We're very deliberate with that. Despite of the, despite of the devastation, the, the, the conflict caused in Liberia, the government has been very intentional to restore most of these structures. Uh, what is left, like I mentioned previously, is to capacitate these structures through the provision of, I mean, intentional health financing mechanism. And so, when NGOs come in, we don't create new structures. We say there is a structure, it might not be as effective as it is. And so what you can do, what you know, what you have, should aim at making it effective and efficient. And so that's what we do. Um, we, <clears throat> we, after this call in the next two hours, I should be at the ministry and the ministry is, is the one that is doing what they call health operational plan. And that health Operational plan, they prepared it per county. The government is saying that she wants to know how much each county needs health-wise every year. And so the Ministry of Health, the county health team, will converge to say infrastructure, this is what we need. Um, um, maternal health, this is what we want to reduce. Um, 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 medicine, this is what we need. So they put that operational plan together. And as partners in health, then somebody from the finance background, I go to those kind of conversations and I listen. I hear what they are doing with the resources that the, the country has. And I show to them our willingness to listen to them and our willingness to say, if you have $5 for fuel for hospital A and the actual need of that hospital is $15, now that I know you have $5, I am going to look in my little resource to cover the gap of that $10. But you see, then there is a balance of give and take. The government is giving, NGOs are giving, the government fees um, part of the entire process. Instead of me going to the ministry and saying, this year I have, a, I have a budget of 1 million and I want to do malaria, I want to do polio, I want to do maternal health. I am the one listening to the government to say, 
show me what you have, and then I will show you what I have to cover that gap. And from time to time, the conversations have been uh, try to look beyond when I'm no longer able to provide this $3 to add to the $2 that you are providing. That's the kind of uh, skill transfer that we are doing. We know that the government is intentional about improving certain things, but capacitating them, showing the desire to accompany them to say, um, if these things have to change, you have to show the commitment. You have to show that you are investing in, in the in the health workforce, you got to show that you are investing in public procurement process for healthcare. You need to show that you are showing commitment to space. And then when you show that commitment, I will add to whatever I'm getting for six months from a donor, for one year from a donor, just to beef up your, your effort. So that's what we do. That's how we've been doing it. It is, yeah. it is, it is very challenging though. And, and I, I'm not speaking everything to sound perfect. The challenge is <clears throat> the government itself is volatile. And by volatilization, I mean politics interplay. Um, government comes and government goes. So when a particular regime comes and another regime goes, if you're not careful to have that policy balance and that commitment balance for, for one regime to pick up from another regime, it's, it's a challenge. I've been here in Liberia already where we've had two democratic transitions. And, and what we've said over and over is to say, we respect politics, but please don't politicize healthcare. Yeah, uh, and you know you're very right because, like you said, um, many countries have sort of volatile uh, political environments. So we'll end with this final question, which is: What would be your advice for any social enterprise or NGO that's looking to work in the healthcare space? What are the, I don't know, maybe top three points <laughs> you would advise um, for them to focus on? Yeah, it's kind of difficult, but I, I have a cap of what I have learned over the years and what I think should happen, especially. And I'm going to make this um, advice based on poor countries. If you are an NGO working in poor countries, the first thing you want to do is you want to build capacity. Because the countries, the communities have to survive beyond you, beyond your NGO. And the only way that can happen is when you build strong and lasting capacity. Two, you have to be a progress and learning center organization. And I know most of the time in NGOs, we want to tell people what we are doing. So we are progressive by nature. And so by, by being progressive in nature, sometimes we lose the script between what, what we have learned from the years. So NGOs working in poor countries should be organizations that listen, learn, and at the same time, they progress. The, the third part is <clears throat> because NGOs are not in isolation, they work with governments, they work with communities, they work with donors, you have to show leadership. And by leadership, uh, I can say governance, uh, because uh, if, if you miss that script, if you miss leadership, if you miss governance, um, you, those who give you money and the outcome they want to see, you lose the connection. So three, build, build capacity if you, if, you, if, you, if you see yourself in poor countries because there are always going to be capacity issues. And the capacity I'm talking about is not only staff-oriented, uh, it's also around the policy side of it, capacity. Then learn and make progress at the same time and have strong governance and leadership structures in place for your organization. For me, those three dots um, could do you more good 
than, than, than any other thing that you would think about. And that, and that was a beautiful summary. So thank you so much for sharing all your experience and wisdom um, of uh, working you know, in Liberia and in other countries uh, with a healthcare injury. Really appreciate um, you sharing your, your knowledge. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Savi and, and, and Ivy. Um, please let me know whatever um, kind of conversation you want to have around healthcare in West Africa. My years of experience of working here, I think, was being in a position to always be willing to contribute to this kind of platform. Uh, public health is, 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 is a thing that if we take for granted a lot in Africa, um, we try to preach it, but we don't practice it. And so this kind of platform allows me to, 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 to learn what public health is, hear from other people, learn from their experience. And I'm always in the position to reach out make myself available as you think what we are doing here is meaningful to the platform and your, your, your organization. Thank you. Thank you.